But you are spying on your own family from... <laughs> Am I? <laughs> Am the, I spying? <laughs> like, you need, like, a pair of binoculars. Just, like, really complete the creepy ensemble. <laughs> oh, what about, a, what about an ice cream truck? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 24th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me from his New York living room is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. How are, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, this is whatever day number of quarantine, you know, so just uh, try not to go stir crazy. Yeah, we've already lost track. Needed to be um, keeping track on the walls or something. <laughs> and joining us from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. Joining you from my parked car before dawn in the back seat like a stone-cold weirdo. That's super weird. <laughs> That's. I really love that your car has just become your podcast studio. It has to. When you have a three-year-old and you're trying to do a podcast at home, um, there's no place safe, really. So I have to go to the car. I have to leave the house. I push the front seat way up. I don't have the wheel in front of me. I'm in the back here. I'm never in the back. I like it. <laughs> so how are you guys holding up? Are you uh, are you finding ways to, uh, to keep sports happening in your lives during this bizarre time? I've been watching a lot of classic games. Uh, I have the, uh, I think it's 1999, or maybe it's 98, a game between the 49ers and the Packers on in the background right now. Literally right now on my television, it's playing. It's, I've been trying to keep like a, a constant stream of, of old games off YouTube playing at all times. <laughs> that's that's actually exactly the way your life has always been with a constant stream of classic games on YouTube. This isn't really anything different for you yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah, usually at like, you know, around 7 p.m. I'd switch over to those like current games, but now I just don't have to switch at all. Yeah, it's just easy. One-stop shopping. What about you, Jeff? I um, have not been doing that. And I got to be honest, I'm missing it. I'm missing the sports world, folks. <laughs> this weekend was hard, too. You know, it was it, like that first tournament weekend is great. It's probably my favorite. I mean, that's not a, a crazy point, but it's probably my favorite sports weekend of the year. Yeah, I was really missing the um, the first couple days of, of March Madness and doing our what we normally do at 538, which is live blogging it, which is so much fun. And just, you know, the communal experience of watching with everyone and like making snarky comments for like eight hours is really <laughs> I was really missing that. I had no one to make snarky comments to except my cats and, you know. They hear that all the time. So <laughs> Well we had we had NFL free agency. That's why I'm wearing my Sam Darnold t-shirt here in honor of the Jets' big free agency moves of uh, getting, um, well, let me just pull up a list of who the Jets got. I think they got a backup guard from someone, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Exciting uh, times. It's brutal. Hey, that that can't even get is wide open now, Jeff. It is. It is. Or is it, Neil? Yeah. Or is it? Probably not. It's probably Patriots not. Patriots are going to find. Like, Brian Hoyer is going to. Yeah, I'll just uh, lead him to the Super Bowl. Yeah, just go to the Super 12 Bowl. 12 and 4. <laughs> 
On today's show, we will look at the official postponement of the Summer Olympics and how it's affecting athletes around the world. Then we'll look at how 538 and folks from around the sports world are thinking about the March Madness tournaments that could have been. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The big news this week in sports, as reported officially just this morning, is that the Tokyo Games will be postponed until 2021. The details are still being worked out. We should know uh, more within the next four weeks, they had said. The IOC had been insisting that the Games would go forward as planned, but pressure mounted and IOC President Thomas Bach said in a letter to athletes on Sunday that the IOC would begin exploring alternate ways to stage the Games. That was quickly followed by Canada, Australia announcing that they would not send delegations if the games went forward as planned in July, and then other countries, including the U.S., followed suit and urged for a delay. Even after the postponement news, the IOC is still facing substantial criticism for delaying the decision this long. Max Kellerman had this to say about it on ESPN's first take. The Olympics is a giant piece of commerce dressed up as an opportunity for a brotherhood or sisterhood of nations um, and, and simultaneously not only promoting this idea of this kind of world coming together, but also of nationalism, because you're rooting for your, you're rooting for your home country and all that. It's really a brilliant, giant piece of commerce in which, by the way, you don't have to pay the athletes. The Olympics are rife with corruption um, up to the highest levels throughout its history. Um, and the fact that they're slow to want to give up the money is unsurprising to me. Um, they don't have a very transparent process, and I haven't been a big fan, unless you, in case you can't tell, of the way um, it's organized and the kind of decisions that have been made in the past. And so um, I'm unsurprised by the behavior of the Olympic Committee at the moment. Jeff, is the IOC being too cavalier with how it's handled the situation? Yeah, I think I was I'll be honest. I I thought it would have been the first thing canceled Um, just by the nature of how many like how many people are involved in a close space from every country in the world. All things considered, it just had the worst environment for the coronavirus. So, yeah, it, it was a little surprising that, you know, when we had that wave of cancellations uh, a week and a half ago, you know, starting with the NBA, really. Um, and then that spread across the globe. And, you know, even something like the Euro uh, 2020 was pushed back a year pretty quickly, comparatively. Um, I, I would have thought it would have happened earlier. But, you know, there's a huge amount of money involved. It seemed to be like there was a little bit of a stalemate between the IOC and the um, the Tokyo organizers. Like, neither really wanted to be the one to make the decision. I think because of the money involved, you know, maybe it was a harder decision and because it only happens once every four years. But now that it's happening in 2021, it seems like, okay, why don't you just, you know, make that call a week ago or a week and a half ago when everyone else did. Yeah, I don't know if they thought if it was optimism about, well, July is far enough away that we can, you know, things might be better. And 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 we're hoping things are better, but the preparation these athletes have to go through to get there, it just didn't seem like that was going to be possible to still do in this amount of time, right? Yeah, and that was yeah. like the common refrain uh, among, among uh, most of the athletes was that, um, you know, it really wasn't about their safety and july per se it was about not having access to these key training facilities in these weeks right now 
And I think this also kind of felt like, I think we've seen this in a lot of cases. We talked about it last week where like the NBA sort of led the country, uh, almost like from the bottom up. And with the, um, with the NCAA tournament, you saw teams, you know, like Kansas decide that they weren't going to play even while the NCAA was kind of hemming and hawing about maybe still doing the tournament with no fans. And in this particular case, you know, I know Canada, Australia, they, also had said, you know, like, we're not sending our athletes into this situation before the IOC's official announcement. So I think we're seeing a lot of different cases of like these bureaucracies that have like a lot of money on the line, sort of dragging their heels about, you know, canceling things officially, whereas people who maybe they're lower down the food chain, but their health is, is more of a concern than the money that could be made by NBC or whatever. So Neil, how are the athletes dealing with all of this? Well, you know, from what I've seen, it, it does seem like there was a, a group that sort of their their thought was, look, we would prefer to have the Olympics this summer because that's sort of what we've been training towards trying to peak, you know, this summer physically. And we'd love to, to continue training for it. Uh, and their biggest issue was about like, let us know whether it's happening or not so we can decide whether to go to these training facilities or just kind of pull the plug and, and figure out what's next. Uh, but there are also, uh, I think, a lot of Olympians that expressed a sense of relief that, you know, about, I haven't seen any reactions to the official announcement this morning, but about the, the IOC member Dick Pound's um, comments yesterday, basically hinting that it was going to be pushed back. There was a sense of relief that, you know, they weren't going to have to expose themselves to potential health concerns um, or make a choice between their own health and doing this thing that, you know, they've been training for for years. Yeah, the the U.S. Olympic trials were supposed to start on June 19th. So there was still time, but the the way the athletes' programs work and how they try to peak, you know, their performance, it just seemed it would be harder and harder for it to happen from their point of view even. Even just in a, um, you know, training has gotten harder with facilities closing and and it just seemed harder and harder like that it would be able to happen for those guys to still be in there at their top shape and isn't that what we want like all of this was falling apart we weren't even going to get you know top competition happening at some point here so why force these athletes into these decisions so the consequences of moving the games are huge. Christine Brennan, who's covered the Olympics for decades, said on ESPN Game Night that it would be like turning a battleship. Jeff, how can they move it? Is it how how easy is it to change all of this right now? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, <laughs> I think ultimately, because of the money involved, they're going to figure it out. I th- to me, the the thing where I have the most questions is the qualification. They say about 57% of Olympic spots have been clinched. So I, I don't actually fully know how that's going to work. If you have those spots, are you going to keep them? I, I presume so. Or are you going to, or, or is that even right? I mean, I, there is a reason a lot of these qualifications, these trials happen right before the games because you want your, your athletes that are peaking at that time. And actually, they all, they all train in these kind of like, you know, with this four year cycle in mind. So I think some of the ramifications from the athlete's perspective are are pretty severe. From the hosting perspective, uh, you know, 
they've already done a sort of a test run for this and they'll just gear it up next year they'll get that battleship at full speed and i i I can't imagine any problems from tokyo's point it is funny how the things they talk about in in this article are are like what are we doing with the flame okay you know (laughs) (laughs) let's make sure we get that one we're gonna uh, and apparently for the for the time being the flame will be stored and displayed in in fukushima okay cool um, yeah, someone please think of the flame. Let's, let's, but what about the flame? Um, and and that they're insisting that they will still be called the 2020 games in 2021. So oh, that's interesting. Hey, yeah. that's like those times when they play um, like Thursday night football on a Saturday night, and they still brand it as Thursday night football. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it's like you know you're doing your taxes for the previous year, so we're just doing the Olympics for the previous year right. next year. Right. You know? That's fine. Yeah. That'll all be fine. <laughs> what are your I mean, pole vault deductions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so the Olympics have never actually been postponed, right? Canceled, but not postponed. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, we, we talked about this, I think, a little bit last week when we were talking about the history of sporting events being, um, you know, derailed by, by world events. But they were canceled because of World Wars One and Two, and there were also boycotts uh, at times. You know, the the U.S. boycotted, I want to say, the 1980 Olympics, and then um, the Soviet Union boycotted the 1984 Olympics. But it, the basically things went on as as scheduled uh, in those cases. So. Uh, maybe the closest thing is that the Munich Games were suspended because 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team were murdered, and but that was only for 34 hours. They they barely uh, uh, skipped a, a stride uh, in in going with the Olympics that way. So this is different, I think, than than any um, thing that we've seen the Olympics do. And maybe that's why they were so hesitant to to make a decision and kept. You know, it was like Dick Pound would say something. Then the IOC would say, he doesn't speak for us. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Then more world events would happen that made it seem impossible that the Olympics would happen. Then Dick Pound would say, hey, guys, you know, I really think this is going to get canceled. And then the IOC would come out and say, yeah, he still doesn't speak for us. Sh- uh, shut up, Dick. You're ruining this for us. <laughs> so that's kind of how the, the Olympic news felt over the past month. That's shocking that the Munich Games were only suspended for that long. I mean, that would just not happen today. I mean, I, right? I don't know if they yeah, would. Right? I don't know if they would full stop cancel, but maybe. Actually, I, I think uh, certainly suspend them for longer than that. I mean, that is unbelievable. It's kind of. I mean, it does. It does kind of explain why the mindset is just like keep going. You know that the Olympics are more important than anything. I mean, if they didn't stop for literal athletes being murdered. If that's how long they stopped, that's that's I sort of understand then not I don't understand, but I'm not surprised, I guess, that this push has been to just keep going here if that's how they typically have operated. Right. And yeah, maybe that speaks to what we were talking about last week of the impulse for like sports to be kind of a refuge from these real world events. And so the the mentality has always been with all of these sports to just push forward as soon as we can. That's what makes this such a unique challenge is that this isn't something that you can just push through the waiting uh, is the point. It's it's like the the only thing that we've encountered in really kind of our modern life where nothing other than time will fix it. And that's not something that we're used to sort of being presented with as the only solution. Yeah. Well, and, and that, 
is an interesting point too. Like we kind of are assuming that pushing these big events to next year, that everything will be okay. But there's, you know, there's a possibility that this virus comes back and that we will have to be dealing with it again next year. That's what happened during the, the 1918, the Spanish flu. So I don't know. I think maybe it's just a measure of optimism that I think, okay, well, next year we'll do it. Everything will be back to normal. <laughs> like I need to think sometime everything is going to be back to normal. And I think I do like having the Olympics as this like beacon of hope for next summer. Um, and the Euros too, the the Euros that are also planned for next summer. If we can think of that as being when things are back to normal, that at least is a, even if it's not true, it at least gives me some hope. We're also going to get a little bit of a throwback with a Winter Olympics and a Summer Olympics in the only eight months apart, which is the way it was for a number of years, us older folks remember, um, before they sort of wisely spread them out to every two years. I think they should just hold them in this in the same place every year. You know, I want to see that Rio Winter Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the way, not to be a cynic, but would Canada have been so quick to pull out of the Winter Olympics? Ooh. Or am I? Uh, <laughs> they're like, oh, summer? So, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're not going. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's some shade to our Canadian friends. Sorry, Canada. <laughs> you know I love you. They're still mad Donovan Bailey never got that... Um, you know that uh, that one-on-one chance against Michael Johnson or whatever it was. <laughs> still mad. Still mad. <laughs> so mad. <laughs> All right, I think we can leave that there. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a different and much more fun kind of theoretical exercise. All right, let's talk about what quickly became known as March Sadness. It's what makes March so great. But now, because of an invisible foe that has yet to be defeated, the NCAA tournament has been canceled. Yes, the NCAA men's and women's tournaments were canceled, but that doesn't mean we can't still have a little madness in our lives. A lot of folks around the sports world, including us at 538, are simulating what could have happened had the tournaments gone on as planned. Neil, tell us about how we built our bracket and who our model liked as the favorites in the tourneys that might have been. Well, so, you know, as as we discussed, the NCAA never actually released the brackets uh, that they would have built, I guess. You know, they, they thought about it. There was, like, some talk that they might do it. And then in the interest of never having fun, they didn't <laughs> do that. And so, uh, they, but, they, but... They have a brand to uphold, Neil. Come on. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, that's true. So we used Joe Lenardi's uh, projected brackets as of whenever the last day play was uh on the men's side and charlie creams for the women's side so that left us with uh the number one seeds being kansas dayton baylor and gonzaga on the men's side and on the women's side we had south carolina maryland oregon and baylor again great year for baylor uh uh, that was on the women's side and so that the the simulations that we ran off of that were just like our normal bracket model we we simulated the tournament i think like ten thousand times or something and then using our power ratings uh for each team uh, and then counted up the number of times each team won so 
our favorite on the men's side was Kansas, 18%. And then on the women's side, a smaller group of, of contenders. We had Oregon as the favorite, 37%. To, wow. to win. So much, much more of a favorite than Kansas was on the men's side. And then South Carolina at 29%, Baylor at 21%, Maryland at 8%, and Louisville and UConn uh, tied at 2%, rounding out the, the field of contenders. So we've played through two rounds so far in our simulations. Uh, any huge upsets on the men's side, Jeff? Oh, yeah. East Tennessee State in the, in the Sweet 16, folks. <laughs> uh, knocking off Duke, and uh, wait a minute, love to see it, Sarah. This this is fishy. This feels like Sarah was back there pulling wires out of the computer or something like that, trying what? to look at this. You got East Tennessee State beating Iowa, who you know we know how you feel about Iowa, and then beating Duke, who we know how you feel about Duke. I mean, that's hardly fair. Everybody hates Duke. You can't Fine. pin that on me. <laughs> Sarah Fine. is a well-known East Tennessee State fan. That's true. The computers hate Duke. Who knew? <laughs> um, so we have three 11 seeds in the Sweet 16, NC State, Indiana, East Tennessee State. Um, East Tennessee State trying to follow the Loyola-Chicago model of two years ago of going to the Final Four out of the 11 spot, um, now plays Kentucky. We also had some interesting upsets Baylor Bears losing in the second round to Rutgers. <laughs> Shocker. Rutgers, who's not been in the tournament since 91. What a storyline. <laughs> also, Gonzaga, another one seed goes down in, in, uh, in the second round. Poor Gonzaga. Even our computer model I thought this model was their like year. It. I did, yeah. too. I did, too. I think it's My really... bracket is busted, Sarah. Yeah. You can tell that this is not, that no one person is picking this, that this is definitely a computer simulation, because we have three 11 seeds in the Sweet 16, which is not a thing that has ever happened in real life, so... <laughs> okay, but... Okay, on that... While on the women's side, that would have be highly unusual. There are weird tournaments. Two years ago was a very strange one. Last year was pretty chalky, but two years ago, I think it was what was it? Kansas State, Loyola, and the Elite Eight. Last, yeah, two years ago was weird, and there were it was super weird, and there were still only two 11 seeds that made the Sweet 16. This is the like extra weird version of that, <laughs> and only two number ones, but all four number twos. Really a strong group of, of two seeds. You know, like, eh, where, did we really think Baylor was necessarily going to go to the, to the Final Four out yeah. of that, uh, Baylor out of that South region? Early. Yeah, Baylor peaked a little early, unfortunately, for them. I'm surprised Dayton beat Florida. That, you know, that was a little surprise. That I, I was had a that shocker. That was an upset. Yeah, that was an upset a lot of people <laughs> were predicting. Villanova lost early out of the three seed. That was, that was a tough one. I'm pulling for Rutgers, folks. Yeah, Rutgers. What a great story. Um, on on the women's side, I assume that Neil likes the women's side, the women's bracket oh, yeah. more this because is, it's, just it's just all, all chalk. chalk. This is how Neil yeah. fills down his bracket, basically. Yeah, Total Neil's chalk. success, Neil's bracket is immaculate right now. Um, uh, yeah. There's, it's all chalk except for one. There was one number six seed, Kentucky, that made it into the Sweet 16. Everybody else was one through four. Which, like, you know, I mean, that's kind of what you expect out of the women's tournament. Like, we know that the upsets are really harder to come by, especially early in the tournament on the women's side than on the men's side. Especially this year, you know, uh, there uh, on the men's side, we talked about it being 
a very strange year, even by normal standards of just there being a lot of teams that either they were blue bloods, but didn't have great seasons. They were kind of out of nowhere teams that had great seasons and it was tough to figure out who the favorite uh, would really be. Whereas on the women's side, it was much more obvious uh, as it usually is that like the top seeds are just head and shoulders above the rest of the country. But Oregon on the women's side, you said 37. Did you say 37% before the tournament? Yeah, going into the tournament, 37. And now they're 31 because they got drawn with UConn. And I, I guess that's uh, UConn is the two seed in the, in the Portland region there. So I guess that affects their uh, their win probability. Yeah, they were the best number two seed according to our uh, power ratings. Um, I The women's side, I think... That those top three seeds together had a combined pre-tournament winning probability of 87%. That really tells you something about the power right now in women's basketball. But I also really love that those three teams are not UConn. Like we're talking about historically great teams and they're not the teams that, you know, that we had seen dominating year after year, which does tell you something about how far women's basketball has gone. I mean, you know, the real one of the real sad things about not getting to see this tournament is not getting to see Sabrina Ionescu in Oregon, like, you know, try to avenge last season's loss. And um, and Oregon was such a fun team and such an interesting team. And South Carolina is so good. I think I, I agree. I think her star power alone would have been drawn even more interest, I think, to the women's tournament this year. I think it's I mean, obviously, she's going to go on and have a good pro career and you know she's not going anywhere but she did come back um for this year and and i think it would have been a really great story um and fun to watch so that that is a shame yeah we actually have a story on our website 538.com written by one neil Payne about the momentum that had been building in women's basketball both college and the WNBA, and how this really this slowdown hurts all sports but it really hurts i I think it really hurts women's sports right now, given the increased interest lately. And it's just a real shame that we're not going to get to see that. So, and, and, you know, likewise, we mentioned the Euro and they, you know, they moved the Euro to next summer, the men's Euro. They basically just took the women's Euros yeah. <laughs> slot allotted time, which was that that summer, next summer. So, I, I mean, I, I'm sure they're going to reschedule it. But, you know, it just shows that it is often the the smaller sports or the less popular sports or the emerging sports that are the bigger victims here i think yeah everything uh shit rolls downhill i guess <laughs> that is what they say <laughs> so given where we are in our simulations who do you guys like on each side well i'm gonna stick with my original pick on the women's side of oregon mm, classic which you guys derided me for but they have a uh, 31 percent chance of winning the tournament uh, which I think is the highest of any remaining team. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So I, I still feel relatively good about that. And uh, yeah, on the men's side, I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to stick with Kansas again. You, you wow. guys derided my pick. Seriously? They're, You're just pick, picking the top These are teams. the two most likely uh, picks right now. Neil, you Neil. can... You True don't have form. to. Yeah, you can actually pick someone else. This isn't real. <laughs> <It doesn't, laughs> you if I, you know, if I, if I was ahead of the curve on this, why shouldn't I uh, stay ahead of the curve? 
<laughs> what a what a good point, <laughs> Jeff. What about you? Who do you? I'm like? sticking. I'm gonna because uh, I'm already getting credit for calling Kentucky. Calling. What did I? <laughs> I <haven't> done anything? <laughs> um, I like I like this Kentucky Kansas Elite Eight matchup uh, in the Midwest. I think we get an upset there, and it's Calipari's year. God, what what could have been? Yeah, seeing John ever... Calipari win. Uh, <laughs> Can't we have finally Calipari win? <laughs> what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> yeah. What about on the women's side? Women's side, you know, I was talking about Maryland. They're still around. I think they have the. Do they have the worst chance of the one seeds? Yes, <laughs> definitely. You know what? I like this disrespected one seed, the Terps. Easy I don't matchup. Think they're disrespected. I think they're pretty I happy don't... to be. To be with the other top seeds. I do love how, though, the other, all of the other one seeds have at least a 25% chance, and then it's like eight. Um, I know who wins, so I'm not going to pick. Oh, what? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I know what happens. That's really fun. I actually would like that in the regular tournaments to, uh, to just know going into it. I wouldn't use it for ill. I wouldn't like bet it. I would just want to know, you know. It's like a, a back to future 2 situation. <laughs> exactly. That's what I want. That's what I need in my life. Yeah, All right. I would take an alternate timeline at this point. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So that's how we are simulating the tournaments. Other folks are also creating their own imagined March Madnesses. ESPN simulated the men's tournament and has Wisconsin over BYU in that final. So that's nice and random, and I love it. The Washington Post got in on the action and has the Ohio State men beating out Baylor to win it all. Also random. Love it. Um, then there are places like us running simulations in semi-real time. Um, High Post Hoops is running a simulation of the women's tournament that's now wrapping up its second round. And Joe Lunardi of ESPN's Bracketology, who we're using for the men's <laughs> bracket, is doing a game-by-game sim on his Twitter. The approaches run the gamut from simply pundit opinions through random number generators of win percentages to running 5,000 simulations and picking the 2020th one, which I really loved. (laughs) Have either of you seen any approaches to these other simulations that you found compelling or seen any interesting results? I think that when you have real math, it, it gives it a little more weight in this fantasy than just someone's opinion in a something where he or she cannot be proven wrong is not interesting. So I'm going, I'm going, I like the ones like 538s that actually at least try to model something here. Yeah. I like the, the one where you just pick one simulation out of the 5,000 ones. It seems to me that's missing the point of the simulations, right? The idea isn't just to isolate one particular run It's to get an aggregate of what is most likely to happen. Again, this is all happening in a non-real timeline, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I I think the lesson in all this is that um, the next time there's a global pandemic that cancels the NCAA tournament, we should have a model that actually plays out the the conference tournaments and then the the seeds also simulate the seeds and build some uncertainty into that and then have the tournament off of that. I mean, I assume that that's the big lesson. It's going to happen again of the last couple weeks. (laughs) Yeah, be ready with your conference tournament models. (laughs) Yeah, that that's what we've learned. (laughs) We'll get right on that for next time. Oh God, (laughs) let's not actually. (laughs) 
All right. I think that's a good place to leave this discussion. Please keep checking back at 538.com to see how the rest of our tournament brackets shake out. The simulated rounds are updated on Fridays and Mondays through what would have been the end of the tournament. For now, let's take a break and we'll be back with a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. So I think we talked about Tom Brady's uh, like farewell letter to the Patriots and their fans last week, but we had not taped our show at the time that Brady actually revealed his destination. And it was revealed to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is just really amazing. You know, we can probably unpack this later, uh, especially as the season gets closer. But I mean, Brady spent 20 years in New England. He had 249 wins, six Super Bowl titles. So he's the winningest quarterback in the history of football. And now he will be joining literally the losingest team, at least by winning percentage, in NFL history, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I wanted to kind of quantify the other times when an all-time great player went to another team at the end of his career and just kind of see how often it worked out and, and also figure out, you know, what are what are the names we should be talking about in comparison with Brady? So what I did was I sorted each player in the big four sports, MLB, NBA, NFL, NHL, by their value created with teams other than one of the franchises that they played for and made sure also that that franchise that they they played for that team at least 90% of the way into their career. So that's like, you know, say you had a 20-year career that was starting in year 18 or something like that. Who do you think is the is the number one uh by this standard uh baseball player of all time? Hmm. That's tough. I feel like I have it's good kind of guesses. obvious. I have good guesses for the other sports, but I'm not that one's not coming to me. Okay. Uh well, so here are a few people that it wasn't. It was not Hank Aaron with the Brewers, although that came close. Uh, he, he spent the last two years of his 23-year career in Milwaukee, which was actually where he had started his career with the Braves. He, he left the Atlanta Braves, went to the Brewers, only had 0.4 war with them. He had 139.4 with uh, over the rest of his career. Uh, so that was one that didn't really work out. Uh, it was not Ty Cobb with the A's. I didn't who even knew, know who that. Who remembered Ty Cobb played with know, the A's? No. I didn't even know that. <laughs> well, there's a really interesting story. Uh, so, so Ty Cobb had been the player manager for the A's and he retired kind of abruptly, uh, in 1926. And people were like, huh, Tris Speaker and Ty Cobb. Tris Speaker's another one that's in, in this pecking order of, of great players on weird teams at the end of their career. They both retired at the same time, same week. And it turned out that they were, uh, coerced into retiring by the president of the American league because they were accused of game fixing and basically were told retire to avoid the scandal. Uh, and so, uh, there was a series of hearings. The guy accusing them ended up not even showing up for the hearings. And so they were cleared of wrongdoing. Both became free agents. And so Ty Cobb signed with Connie Max, Philadelphia A's, uh, becoming one of seven Hall of Famers on that team uh, in 1927. And he actually was pretty good. Uh, he, he had 4.3 war at age 40 in 1927 and then, you know, was a part-time player in, in 1928. Uh, and so that was a case of one that worked out. Uh, but the number one player in baseball was actually Babe Ruth 
with the Boston Braves. Uh, it was the last season of his 22-year career. He only had 0.1 war with the Braves. He had 181.6 with the Red Sox and the Yankees. Um, and it was kind of a sad story. The, the Braves, he didn't even make it out of May of 1935 before, uh, playing the last game of his career and retiring it. So kind of an undignified end. Tom Brady should hope that he doesn't end up like, uh, like Babe Ruth with the Boston Braves. Now basketball, what do you guys think is number one for basketball? I would guess Hakeem Olajuwon on the Raptors. That's up there. It is up there. What What do you think, Sarah? You know, I I, ha- I feel like I'm at a disadvantage here because I never remember the last season <laughs> no of does. these guys. I'm like, <laughs> wait, Babe Ruth, Boston Braves, what? Like, I no, I just did not think right. of that at all. So, um, I mean, but isn't it got to? Doesn't it have to be Michael Jordan? I mean, it is. Yes, hey! no, right, Sarah. <laughs> Jordan on the Wizards. So Elijah Wan on the Raptors was number five last season of his 18 year career. Sad end. He only had 0.8 war uh, as a Raptor. But yes, Michael Jordan with the Wizards, number one in basketball. Jordan, you know, I think when we look back on this, Jordan was not as bad as uh, people think that he was on the Wizards. He was basically an average player. In his in his final season, he was a little bit better than average if you look at Raptor. But the Wiz won 37 games both years he was there. Uh, and it was really kind of, it, it would have been much better for him to have his final image be that shot that he hit against Utah in 1998 and not getting his knee drained on the bench uh, in Washington. <laughs> uh, so if we move on to football, right now, as of last week, Tom Brady is number one. Uh, sorry to spoil that for you guys, but um, who who do you think was number one before Brady, though? I would guess. See, I I was under the thinking that you had to play your entire career for one team, and then you did one stint. That's why I guessed Elijah one. Um, I guess I could have guessed Michael Jordan. Cause yeah, he, yeah, I was, was going to say, say nice try. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> Montana that on the one, Chiefs? That's in the top 10, but it is not number one. Sarah, any guesses? Well, I, I, I know he's not. He wouldn't have been number one. I know he's on the list, though, of Brett Favre. Yes. Yeah, Brett Favre is in there. So uh, Joe, Joe Namath on the Rams? That's that's up there, too. Uh, but So Peyton Manning on the Broncos is number five in terms of his approximate value put up with other teams, which just tells you how great Peyton Manning was because he actually – had a great career with the Broncos. Uh, he he uh, set the all-time touchdown record, was named MVP in 2013, made two Super Bowls, won one of those Super Bowls. So that's a case of going to another team, and it worked out. Uh, Brady should hope he's as lucky uh, as, as Manning was. Number four is Reggie White with the Carolina Panthers. This is one that wow. I did not remember no happening. No memory. At all. Last season of his 15-year career, he actually had retired after the 98 season. He was named Defensive Player of the Year at age 37, but then uh, was lured out of retirement by the Panthers. He was like was building a home in North Carolina, and so he <laughs> wanted a chance to, I guess, just like, you know, hey, I live here already, may as well play. Uh, but he ended up having career lows and sacks, tackles, approximate value, uh, and... Just kind of a weird uh, thing that people don't really even remember him playing. I do love that, though. I love that. that yes. Like, how very normal of him. Like, 
oh, I'm, I'm new to the area. Can I get a job here? And right, I did. Yeah. That's great. Just moved here. Just <laughs> looking for some employment. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Brett Favre with the Jets and the Vikings. That was the last three seasons of his 20-year career. Uh, and uh, Sarah, I mean, like, the, the less that's said about this, the better. <laughs> he, he was actually very good uh, during the, the regular season in 2009, one of the best seasons of his career. He was 40 years old, uh, uh, turned 40 in the middle of the season. And then the season not end. ended. And we didn't go to yes, the playoffs, right. and it was we just didn't even over. talk about yeah what happened after that. Uh, his second season uh, with the Vikings not uh, not really as good, and kind of a parallel there with the Jets, who was just packed into one season where he started the year eight and three as a starter, but then they went one and four down the stretch and missed the playoffs. He so was bad. That one was one that didn't work out. He was bad. Yeah, he was bad. Yeah. I mean, I I actually remember watching him on the Vikings and being like, what? Where? Where was that? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. It didn't last. It didn't end well. Uh, number two, uh, number one before Brady joined the Buccaneers was Jerry Rice with the Seattle Seahawks oh. and the Denver Broncos, although he never actually played a regular season game with them. So wow. it was weird enough seeing Jerry Rice play for the Raiders, but he was actually pretty good for them. He uh, he had 3,219 yards in his first season, uh, three seasons as a Raider, went to the Super Bowl, but then Oakland traded him in the middle of the 2004 season to the Seahawks, and he was just really a, a shell of his, his former self. Then he signed with the Broncos, but thought better of it before uh, the regular season started and, and just retired. But of course, Brady, who knows how many seasons this will be in his career, but he had 280 AV uh, with the Patriots, which is the most of any player ever. Uh, and so by definition, any team that he went to, he would rise up to the number one spot on this list. Uh, and so we'll see. I mean, you know, he ha- he'll have better weapons in Tampa than he did in New England, but he's also insanely old uh, for a quarterback trying to be a Super Bowl contender, much less a starter. Uh, and then finally, we'll move on to hockey. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any guesses. This it, one is... It has to be Marty Brodeur on the St. Louis Blues. Brodeur is in the... He, he's actually seventh on the list. Seventh? What he's is seventh this? Seventh. Behind uh, Paul Coffey. Uh, I'll spare you having to guess, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Jacques, Jacques Plante. Yaramir Yager, uh, number three on the list for hockey is Ray Bork with the Avalanche. Last two seasons of his 22-year career. Uh, number two is Gordie Howe with the Whalers, with the, the Whale. Hartford and New England Whalers. Uh, there's the last three seasons of his 32-year career in pro hockey, and he he played with his sons. I think that was a big reason why he, he did it, but he was also pretty good. His first season in new England, he had 96 points and 34 goals and then played his last NHL season at age 51 in 1980. Uh, and he had 41 points for a playoff team at age 51 uh, before retiring. Uh, one other note on how is that he did actually come back one more time as a 69-year-old in 1997 playing for the Detroit Vipers. He signed a one-game contract to be able to say that he played in, in the pros in six different decades. So maybe that's the weirdest uh, stint that we've ever seen of, of, a, of a great player ever is a 69-year-old Gordie Howe skating out on the ice uh, with the Detroit Vipers. Uh, but fi- the number one for hockey in terms of value produced with a team other than the one you were playing for is Wayne Gretzky with the New York Rangers last three seasons of his 20 year NHL 
NHL career. Uh, he went to the Rangers after a very brief stint with St. Louis and uh, played one year with his longtime teammate, Mark Messier, and they were good. He had a good season. They went to the conference finals before losing. Then Messier left. Gretzky still led the league in assists in 1998, uh, but then finally his numbers fell off to career lows in, in 99. That one worked out eh, okay. He didn't really bring the cup to the Rangers the the way that they were hyping it uh, before he got there. But still, he, he showed uh, uh, an amount of production at least. So I, if you had to ask me how Brady would perform with the Buccaneers. I think it might be a little bit along the lines of like a Gretzky or, or someone like that, where it's like, it worked out okay. His numbers weren't what they used to be. It wasn't like a Hakeem Olajuwon situation, but you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll have to see. What do you guys think? Uh, what, what path do you think Brady will take? I want to make a clarification here for these listeners who, who think I am a moron. Uh, I thought it was more discrepancy between production on one team and the other team, not success stories. That's why I would guess Brodeur, who won 688 NHL games and 685 for the Devils and three for the Blues. <laughs> Very similar to Elijah in that sense. Um, I think Brady, to answer your question, basically looked down the NFL uh, roster sheet and just went to the team with the most dynamic receiving core because he's tired of this nonsense in New England uh, throwing to this like ragtag rogues gallery of receivers that they've had for years and now he's got Mike Evans and Godwin and all these weapons so he's personally I think he's in a position to succeed but it'll be really interesting Wait, wait, sorry. Are we done talking about hockey now? I blacked out for a second. Yeah, we're, oh, we're yes, done with we're hockey, done. We're done. Can, I, uh, we're no longer talking about uh, right Marty Brodeur's stint on the St. Louis Blues. Oh, great. Thanks. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right, Jeff. I think I think both of you are right. Like, this is a, a good situation for Brady. Um, and if he was going to stay in football, which maybe he shouldn't have, maybe he should have just retired, right? But if he was going to stay in it, this seems like a good enough situation. It seemed like the it wasn't going to happen in New England, which was, of course, where I think most people would have liked to see him end his career. But I, I'm interested to see what he does. I mean, it'd be good to see whether he can pull off anything outside of the, the world of Bill Belichick. And it'll be interesting to see how the Patriots do. You know, we were oh, kind yeah. of joking earlier about um, – Brian Hoyer and but like would anyone really be surprised if they won 10 11 12 games uh you know without Brady oh maybe 12 is pushing it a little but we've seen them win 11 games with Matt Castle you know <laughs> yeah I don't think Bill Belichick is done this didn't need to happen but I'm excited that it is happening so we can see how how both of them are without each other so finally we'll know and we yeah. also get to see uh Philip Rivers on the Colts so that'll be weird. It's a whole new world. That will be weird. <laughs> okay. I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And please review and rate us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mellon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.